0: Listen, what I'm fighting for are simple principles. Live within our means. Stop bankrupting our kids and grandkids. Follow the Constitution. And no gay marriage. And no gay marriage. No, actually, let's be precise. Under the Constitution, marriage is a question for the states. If you want to change the marriage It doesn't mention marriage in the Constitution. uh, We have had a country for over 200 years... So you may be right, you may be right, but it doesn't mention marriage in the Constitution. You believe And that that's marriage... exactly why it's a question for the states, because the Tenth Amendment says if it doesn't mention it, mm-hmm. it's a question for the states. That's in the Bill of Rights. Everything that is not mentioned is left to the states. So if you want to change the marriage laws... I'm, I'm asking what you want. I, I believe in democracy. I believe in democracy, and I don't think we should no, 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 trust... guys, guys, however you feel, he's my guest, so please don't boo him. I don't think we should entrust governing our society to five unelected lawyers in Washington. Why would you possibly hand over the rights of 320 million Americans to five lawyers in Washington to say, we're going to decide the rules that govern you? If you want to win an issue, go to the ballot box and win at the ballot box. That's the way the Constitution was
1: designed. Now, that was Texas Senator Ted Cruz on the late show with Stephen Colbert earlier this year. And that interview came after, a few months after, the Supreme Court ruled that gay marriage was constitutional, and that all bans against it were unconstitutional in all 50 states in the case Obergefell v. Hodges, but politician activists like Cruz have called for a reversal of that ruling, saying that the Constitution doesn't provide the court with the basis to grant the federal government powers to regulate something like marriage, because it's not mentioned in the Constitution, and as we'll see today, If it's not mentioned in the Constitution, it's supposed to be a state issue. The Ninth and 10th Amendment have often been used as means to attack federal government action that people don't like and what some will perceive to be courts with overinflated influence. And today on the show, we're looking at whether or not those viewpoints, like the viewpoints of Mr. Cruz on the 10th Amendment and uh, and the Ninth Amendment, whether or not those viewpoints are justified and the role that the Ninth and 10th Amendments ought to play in our modern society. I'm Cole, and this is Political Theory. Now, the Ninth Amendment to the United States Constitution reads, quote, "...the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people," end quote. And in more layman's terms, it's a way of saying that people have rights other than those that are mentioned in the Constitution. See, when the Constitution was being drafted, there was a lot of debate over whether or not to include a Bill of Rights, One common fear supported by founding fathers like Alexander Hamilton expressed concern that a Bill of Rights would lead people to the conclusion that only some rights were protected while others didn't matter and could be abused by the government. James Madison, who wrote the Ninth Amendment in response to this, explained the inclusion of the the Ninth Amendment thusly. He said, quote, It has been objected also against a Bill of Rights that by enumerating particular exceptions to the grant of power, it might follow by implication that those rights which were not singled out were intended to be assigned into the hands of general government, and were consequently insecure. This is one of the most plausible arguments I could have heard urged against the admission of Bill of Rights into the system, but I conceive that it may be guarded against. I have attempted it, he, conc- quote, he concluded, referring to his first attempt draft at what ultimately became the Ninth Amendment. Madison is effectively saying that in order to mitigate the effects of Hamilton's point, that people might think they were guaranteed only the rights in the Bill of Rights, an additional amendment would be added to to say that that's not the case. And this, of course, becomes the Ninth Amendment. Now, one of the most common ways to evaluate whether or not rights are being denied or disparaged is to evaluate whether or not people have been deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, like the Fifth and uh, Fourteenth Amendments guarantee. But the vagueness of that makes it difficult to fully evaluate what rights people have. Since the ratification of the Constitution, some rights have been protected by being added to the Constitution, like the Fifteenth and Nineteenth Amendment, which protects the right to vote but it's somewhat unrealistic for Congress to pass anything these days, much less a bill with two-thirds support that's going to modify the Constitution. A lot of uh, different viewpoints have emerged regarding how to interpret the Ninth Amendment. Is it simply a a roadmap for reading the Constitution? Is it a restriction on the court system to stop them from making up rights, as we'll talk about in a little while? Or is it an invitation for the court system to create more rights? New York Times op-ed contributor Glenn Harlan Reynolds phrases the questions to his reader like this, end quote, or start quote, I mean. Uh, do you believe that, it, that this language binds federal courts, or do you believe, as Robert Bork does, that it is an indecipherable inkblot? If the former, how are federal courts to determine what rights are retained by the people? On the other hand, if the Ninth Amendment does not create enforceable rights, what is it doing taking up one-tenth of the Bill of Rights? End quote. Over the course of American judicial history, the Ninth Amendment has been used by the courts to claim that Americans are protected by certain rights even if they're not in the Constitution, like privacy, for instance. Privacy is not a right guaranteed to the American people in the Constitution, but that doesn't mean, it ought to, uh, it doesn't mean it ought not to be protected, right? This first became an issue in 1961 with a Supreme Court case, Griswold v. Connecticut. In Griswold v. Connecticut, uh, the court was addressing a Connecticut law that made it illegal to use contraception. Then in 1961, a member of Planned Parenthood and a New Haven doctor were arrested for giving information about contraceptive devices to married couples. The court struck down the Connecticut law forbidding contraception on the grounds of its uh, unconstitutionality because it restricted the right of martial privacy, and in doing so, they created the idea that couples have privacy in their home to do as they please. please. While privacy isn't mentioned in the Constitution—the word doesn't actually appear once—the court concluded that it was a natural extension of existing rights, and subsequently, under the Ninth Amendment, could be considered constitutionally protected. Uh, Justice Arthur Goldberg wrote, quote, The Ninth Amendment to the Constitution may be regarded by some as a recent discovery and may be forgotten by others, but since 1791 it has been a basic part of the Constitution which we are sworn to uphold. To hold that a right so basic and fundamental and so deep rooted in our society as the right of privacy and marriage may be infringed because that right is not guaranteed in so many words by the first eight amendments to the Constitution is to ignore the Ninth Amendment and to give it no effect whatsoever. Moreover, a judicial construction that it- this fundamental right is not protected by the Constitution because it is not mentioned in explicit, explicit terms by one of the first eight amendments or elsewhere in the Constitution, would violate the Ninth Amendment. End quote. Goldberg, Goldberg writes, but perhaps the more controversial part of this decision came from Justice William O. Douglas, who concluded that privacy was a natural extension of the existing constitutional rights, sparking a heated debate. Douglas wrote, quote, Specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras formed by emanations from those guaranteed that help give them life and substance, end quote, basically saying that you could infer rights like the right to privacy based on existing rights that we have. Legal legal scholars quickly became divided over this, questioning the precedent it set to decide that courts could say something was a right because it seemed an extension of existing rights. Some argue that it was a fair reading of the Ninth Amendment, and it was reasonable to infer what rights were guaranteed based on existing rights, given that it would be unreasonable for the Constitution to guarantee every right possible. Others, though, feared that Douglass' opinion would give power to the courts to determine what rights were protected and what wasn't if it didn't appear in the Constitution. And many of them don't. Many rights, don't I mean. Which means that there could be a lot of rights that were left up to the court to decide the constitutionality of. To quote In Our Defense by Ellen Alderman and Caroline Kennedy, Quote, Critics argue that because substantive due process is not bound to a specific constitutional provision other than the open-ended concept of liberty, it, the ruling, gives judges licenses to impose their personal beliefs on the Constitution, creating or striking down laws at will, end quote. Now, there isn't a much better way to determine what rights people have and what they don't, other than the courts, but it's uh, it's also not, at least at this time, clear what could be done to stop the courts from using the Ninth Amendment to justify almost anything by claiming it to be a right and thus constitutional. Take abortions. Before Roe v. Wade reached the Supreme Court, it was dealt with by a Texas district court, which ruled that a, right, a woman has a right to abortion under the Ninth Amendment. Now, this claim was highly disputed, and it's not guaranteed in the Constitution, obviously. The Supreme Court declined to address that part of the ruling and focused on 14th Amendment claims instead, so it never reached the Supreme Court. But many saw this ruling by the Texas Court, which claimed that women were guaranteed an abortion under the Ninth Amendment, as a way for the courts to create rights, rather than a way to stop a few members of society from making up rights that ought to be, as the amendment says, retained by the people. There isn't a clear conclusion on this one, with legal scholars on both sides of the aisle, uh, but... What few cases there have been do seem to indicate that the Ninth Amendment can be used as an effective tool in Griswold v. Connecticut, but only if it's used properly. Now, we're going to go on to talk about the Tenth Amendment, and the Tenth Amendment has often been been viewed as a foil to the Ninth Amendment, a companion amendment, if you will. It reads, quote, The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people, end quote. While the Ninth Amendment is saying that there are rights guaranteed to the citizenry other than those in the Constitution, the Tenth Amendment is saying that those rights are for the states and the people to decide. The Tenth Amendment is widely seen as the basis for states' rights and federalism, delegating more specific powers to the states. But it raises the question of what should be left to the states. Take minimum wage, one of the issues with the most variety. For instance, LA, Los Angeles, has a minimum wage law that will make minimum wage $15 there in five years, while states like Louisiana have no minimum wage laws at all. Joe Miller, a Tea Party candidate in Alaska, summed up that viewpoint well, I think, when he said about minimum wage, quote, What I'd recommend that you do is go to the Constitution and look at the enumerated powers, because what we have is something that we call the Tenth Amendment that says, look, if it's not there, if it's not enumerated, then it's delegated to the states. Everything that's not there is reserved to the states and the people, end quote. But right-wingers like Miller have often found themselves on the opposite spectrum of the Supreme Court. The court has been presented with minimum wage cases on multiple occasions and continuously upheld the right of the federal government to set a minimum wage, citing the Commerce Clause in the Constitution, which says that Congress has the right to, quote, relegate commerce with foreign nations and among several states and with the Indian tribes, end quote. In the 1941 case United States v. Darby Lumber Company, the court upheld the Fair Labor Standards Act, which set a minimum wage of 25 cents. And in the 1974 case Fry v. United States, The court held that Ohio could not override federal minimum wage laws. In the 1985 case, Garcia v. San Antonio Metropolitan Transit Authority, the court ruled that the federal government has the ability to regulate wages for state and local employees. Similar arguments have been made concerning marijuana and whether or not that's a state's right or not. President Obama has announced that he won't enforce the federal marijuana ban, but that might not be the case if the next president doesn't feel that way. If Chris Christie, for instance, is elected president... He has said he will enforce the uh, federal ban on marijuana, as you can hear here in a heated exchange between the New Jersey governor and Kentucky Senator Rand Paul at the last GOP presidential debate.
2: Governor Christie recently said, quote, if you're getting high in Colorado today where marijuana has been legalized, enjoy it until January 2017, because I will enforce the
3: federal laws against marijuana. Will you? I personally think that this is a crime for which the only victim is the individual, And I think that America has to take a different attitude. I'd like to see more rehabilitation and less incarceration. I'm a fan of the drug courts, which try to direct you back towards work and less time in jail. But the bottom line is the states, we say we like the 10th Amendment until we start talking about this. And I think the federal government's gone too far. I think that the war on drugs has had a racial outcome and really has been something that's really damaged our inner cities. Not only do the drugs damage them, we damage them again by incarcerating them and then preventing them from getting employment over time. So I don't think that the federal government should override the states. I believe in the 10th Amendment, and I really will say that the states are left to themselves.
2: You know, first off, New Jersey is the first state in the nation that now says if you are a nonviolent, non-dealing drug user, that you don't go to jail for your first offense. You go to mandatory treatment. You see, As Jake, I'm pro-life. And I think you need to be pro-life for more than just the time in the womb. It gets a lot tougher when they get out of the womb. And when they're the 16-year-old drug addict before the county lockup, that life is just as precious as the life in the womb. And so that's why I'm for rehabilitation, why I think the war on drugs has been a failure. But I'll end with this. That doesn't mean we should be legalizing gateway drugs. And if Senator Paul thinks that the only victim is the person, look at the decrease in productivity, look at the way people get used and move on to other drugs when they use marijuana as a gateway drug. It's not them that they're the only victims. Their families are the victims too, their children are the victims too, and their employers are the victims also. And that's why I'll enforce the federal law while you can still put an emphasis on rehabilitation, which you've done in New Jersey. Yeah, you may respond
0: and
3: then I'll bring in you, Ms. Fiorina. Understand what they're saying. If they're going to say we are going to enforce the federal law against what the state law is, They aren't really believing in the 10th Amendment. Governor Christie would go into Colorado, and if you're breaking any federal law on marijuana, even though the state law allows it, he would put you in jail. If a young mother is trying to give her child cannabis oil for medical marijuana for seizure treatment, he would put her in jail if it violates federal law. I would let Colorado do what the 10th Amendment says. This power, we were never intended to have crime dealing at the federal level. Crime was supposed to be left to the states. Colorado's made their decision, and I don't want the federal government interfering and putting moms in jail who are simply trying to get medicine for their kids. And And, and Senator
2: Paul knows that that's simply not the truth. In New Jersey, we have medical marijuana laws, which I've supported and implemented. This is not medical marijuana. This goes as much further step beyond. This is recreational use of marijuana. This is much different. And so while he'd like to use a sympathetic story to, to back up his point, it doesn't work. I'm not against medical marijuana. We do it in New Jersey. But I am against the recreational use of marijuana. If he wants to change the federal law, get Congress to pass uh, pass a law to change it and get a president to sign it.
3: May I respond?
2: Yes, Senator Paul.
3: Here's the thing is he doesn't want to make it about medical marijuana, but what if New Jersey's medical marijuana contradicts the federal law? He's saying he will send the federal government in and he will enforce the federal law. That's not consistent with the Tenth Amendment, it's not consistent with states' rights, and it's not consistent with a conservative vision for the country. I don't think we should be sending the federal police in to arrest a mother and separate them from their child for giving a medicine to their child for seizures.
1: Now, obviously, marijuana isn't mentioned in the Constitution, but the court has ruled that the federal government has the right to enforce a ban against it under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which you'll remember we talked about a second ago. Because marijuana grown often finds its way into the economy and can affect commerce, the government can enforce its ban against it, and thus the federal ban is constitutional. The court found. One challenge to this kind of thinking would be that the government could be granted the power to regulate almost anything that could affect the economy, which, if you take the viewpoint, is pretty much everything. So, does the court, uh, should the court, I mean, be less lenient with how often they cite the commerce clause and have more rigorous standards than simply the presence of something affecting the economy? Given uh, how often the Commerce Clause has been cited by the Supreme Court, I can't imagine this will be the last time it pops up in this podcast. And because the Constitution is a pretty big document, I think it's unrealistic to go through it and point out every example for every case and clause. But I do want to talk about the Commerce Clause for a second. The Commerce Clause grants the federal government, like uh, we said a second ago, it grants them the ability to regulate commerce between states and nations, which is a um, a pretty big definition. The Tenth Amendment has been used time and time again as a way to challenge actions taken by federal government. For instance, in four states, legislators have introduced legislation that attempts to nullify federal cap-and-trade laws on several occasions in many states, and I mean like 30-plus states. Uh, Similar actions have been taken against federal health care programs, calling for their nullification on Tenth Amendment grounds. But uh, on the many occasions that people have tried to challenge federal action— it often gets shot down courtesy of the Commerce Clause in the Constitution. For instance, on the issue of cap and trade, Michael Bolden of the Tenth Amendment Center says, quote, "...cap and trade is often claimed to be uh, authorized under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. At best, this is a highly dubious claim," end quote. And he goes on to argue that the Commerce Clause has been appri- applied far too broadly. Bolden writes that at the time of the Commerce Clause passing, quote, "...the regulation of commerce was meant to empower Congress to regulate the buying and selling of products made by others, and sometimes land, associated finance, and financial instruments and navigation, and other carriage across state uh, jurisdictional lines. The interstate regulation of commerce did not include agriculture, manufacturing, mining, malum and say crime, or land use, nor did it include activities that merely substantially affect commerce," end quote. And Ron Paul, former Texas congressman and pre- presidential candidate, wrote in a Business Insider op-ed, quote, the Commerce Clause was intended to facilitate free trade by giving the federal government limited power to ensure state governments did not impose taxes and regulations on out-of-state business. Contrary to modern belief, the Commerce Clause was not intended to give Congress power to regulate every sector of the economy, end quote. Uh, of course, this is an issue for the courts to decide, but a lot of it simply has to do with how much the economy has expanded since the Commerce Clause was passed. In in Gibbons v. Uh, Ogden, I think is how you say it, in 1824, Chief Justice John Marshall redefined the clause a bit by saying that commerce does not just mean economic transactions between individuals and companies, but all forms of commercial, quote-unquote, intercourse. And that ruling dramatically expanded the definition of commerce. Of course, commerce as a whole has changed fundamentally since the early days of the Constitution, and maybe that's why some of these rulings are justified. Ah, uh, cap and trade wasn't even a thing when the commerce clause was first uh, came into when the cap and trade wasn't even a thing when the commerce clause first came into existence. So the founding fathers would have been rendered unable to give their opinion on it. I guess really to try and sum up the debate regarding the commerce clause and whether or not it's and how it's been applied to try and sum it up in a single question, uh, I would pose it like like this: um, Are the courts justified in using the commerce clause to? Uh, to give such a broad spectrum of federal action, or should the courts take a more serious look at what the Commerce Clause was intended to mean in the context of states' rights, i.e., is the Commerce Clause meant to ensure that government only has the power to regulate what states can't simply, by the nature of their resources, do? Because if so, then states are plenty able to regulate things like minimum wage and marijuana on their own, and the Commerce Clause only serves to ensure that there is an agency available to serve as a bridge between different states. Or should it be the Commerce Clause be applied with a much broader definition, should the reach of, commerce, of the Commerce Clause expand as commerce does too. Healthcare wasn't even a, a thing when the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, and it's changed fundamentally since LBJ first signed Medicaid laws uh, back into passage in 1965. But it's undeniably an important part of commerce, so does that mean that we should neglect it because it doesn't fit into that definition of what the Founding Fathers understood commerce to be? Ultimately, it's it's something that's very much so up for debate. It's probably something that's going to come up again, either on this podcast and certainly in the real world, so we'll have to wait until then for more information. Thanks for listening to the episode, and on the next episode, we'll be talking about the 2016 election and possible veep choices for the Democratic Party. If you have any suggestions, questions, comments, concerns, observations, or whatever else, please email me at politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com, and visit our website at politicaltheorypodcast.com for more information about the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.